Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Dr. Sheila Rausch serves as Deputy Director of the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program and Director of Mental Health Research and Program Evaluation at the Atlanta VA Healthcare System. Dr. Rausch has been developing programs, conducting research, and providing PTSD and anxiety disorders treatment for over 20 years. Her research focuses on examination of mechanisms involved in the development and treatment of PTSD and improving access to effective interventions. She has led several PTSD treatment outcome and mechanism trials and has been providing care and training to providers throughout the world on PTSD treatment since 2000. She has published articles, chapters, and books on anxiety disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder, focusing on neurobiology and factors involved in the development, maintenance, and treatment of anxiety disorders, psychosocial factors in medical settings, and the relation between physical health and anxiety. She's an author of the second edition of the Prolonged Exposure Manual and Patient Workbook, as well as the PE for Intensive Outpatient Programs Manual. She is a fellow of the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, was granted membership in the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology, and serves as a member of the Board of Directors and Scientific Council of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Dr. Carmen McLean is a licensed clinical psychologist and researcher with the Dissemination and Training Division of the National Center for PTSD at the Palo Alto VA Healthcare System and a clinical associate professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. She completed her doctorate at the University of Nebraska, her clinical internship at the University of Chicago Medical Center, and a postdoctoral fellowship at the National Center for PTSD at the Boston VA Medical System. Her research examines ways to increase the reach of exposure therapy for PTSD by addressing implementation barriers and testing e-health interventions. She is currently a co-PI of a DOD-funded study testing a tailored process improvement approach to increasing the use of evidence-based treatment for PTSD in the U.S. military system. She is also a PI of a FEMA-funded trial testing an intensive, integrated treatment for PTSD, insomnia, and nightmares in firefighters. Dr. McLean is also leading a trial testing a variable-length, peer-coached, supported version of written exposure therapy delivered online for veterans with PTSD. Dr. McLean serves on several journal editorial boards and is currently associate editor of the Journal of Anxiety Disorders and Cognitive Behavioral Practice. She has over 125 scholarly publications, including a book on applied neuroscience and exposure therapy. All right, Drs. Rausch and McLean, welcome so much to Thoughts on Record. How are you both doing today? Doing very well. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Happy to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here today to discuss some of the themes in your book, Retraining the Brain, Applied Neuroscience and Exposure Therapy for PTSD. This is exactly the kind of book that I wish every therapeutic modality had available. I I think this lens on psychotherapy is not only extremely fascinating for clinicians, but is also extremely useful for optimizing our approaches to therapy based on how the brain actually processes information. I think it's also great to be able to provide clients a little bit more information about how their brain works, take them under, under the hood a little bit, and to help them understand why we do what we do within the context of therapy, which can sometimes be very challenging. So again, thank you both for being here today. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. So I'll start with the first question that I ask just about every guest who's authored a book. Why did you want to write this book? What was speaking to you that needed to come out into the therapeutic world around this topic? So I'll take that because I pulled Carmen into this. (laughs) 
Um, so <laughs> I really wanted to write this book because I, um, in my career, I'm both a clinician and a neuroscientist. Um, and I love the work that I do on both sides of that fence. Um, and one thing that I've learned over lots of years of training providers in prolonged exposure and other therapists is that many of them are intimidated by neuroscience. Um, and so I wanted to create a book that would provide um, kind of a pathway and a connection between uh, the neuroscience community and therapy providers so that they could see um, a little bit or have at least some level of understanding of uh, some of the brain and body processes that may be involved in the change that they're looking for in their patients. And in addition to that, I wanted to provide kind of that, that um, other way, the other direction, and have a window for the neuroscientists to see the therapy side of things. Because just, just like the um, therapists don't get the neuroscience methods and technology the neuroscientists often don't really understand the nuance and the um, the levels of intervention that we use in prolonged exposure. That's wonderful. Prior to my career as a clinician, I worked as a uh, scientist in a research center here in Ottawa, and we would always speak about bench to bedside, having that translational function between laboratory work into the clinical realm. And it was very difficult for those two groups to talk to one another at times. So it's, it's very, uh, it's very nice to have a book like this. One thing I like to do on the podcast is basically to get sort of the core concepts out there for the audience first, so they can have a, a sense of perhaps what we're talking about if they're not familiar. For the unacquainted in the audience, would one of you perhaps mind providing a brief overview of prolonged exposure therapy, knowing that a description like this could go on for hours and hours and hours, but maybe in a nutshell, what is prolonged exposure therapy for the, for the uninitiated? Carmen, you want to take sure. that? <laughs> sure. So prolonged exposure therapy is um, a type of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and it's a type of exposure therapy, which means you're helping the um, client to approach things that they've been avoiding. Exposure therapy is used to, to, to treat a lot of different anxiety related um, conditions. And it's quite um, effective and including for, for PTSD. So prolonged exposure is, is a particular um, treatment package that's in exposure therapy. And in this protocol, um, the, the therapist helps the client do two um, main things. One is helps them to approach the memory of the worst traumatic event that they've experienced. Um, and you do that through a technique called imaginal exposure. So that's a really key component of prolonged exposure or PE is imaginal exposure. And um, that's the revisiting of the trauma memory and sort of recounting it um, verbally in the session. And then the other kind of approaching that the therapist helps the client do is approaching the real life situations and, and things in their daily life that the client's been avoiding because it causes a lot of distress and reminds them of the trauma. <clears throat> and, um, and so that's the other piece. Uh, that's the other way in which um, the therapist helps the client kind of approach and sort of get back to living a full life. Um, and so those are the main, sorry, I'll just add to that, that technique is called in vivo exposure. So it's real life exposure. So imaginal and in vivo are the main 
um, sort of components. There's also, of course, psychoeducation, which really important piece to kind of get on the same page with the with the client, help them understand um, the reactions they're having, build rapport, help them understand the rationale for approaching um, trauma-related, you know, memories and situations because that is difficult to do. Um, but it is uh, a really important, you know, it's a main part of the therapy and it, and it, it is, is critical for recovery. Um, so helping them understand why we're doing this and why it's going to be helpful for them is really important. Um, those are the main things so that it's a, it's typically done in 90 minute sessions can be done in shorter sessions as well, but traditionally it's 90 minutes um, once a week or more often um, has also been found helpful. It's a very flexible protocol. Um, and it's like other cognitive behavioral therapies, it's a short-term um, treatment. So it's about eight to 15 sessions typically. And we usually see you know, pretty rapid um, reduction in PTSD symptoms um, with this treatment um, that tend to, to last over time after treatment ends. Wonderful, that's a very helpful summary. Now, of course, we know the clinical efficacy of prolonged exposure or PE, which you might hear us abbreviate it to, has been, you know, it's been well established. There's a wealth of data around this. You know, big picture, does the neuroscience suggest that PE works owing to its proposed theoretical underpinnings or there has, has there been any surprises in this respect or maybe even like a blend of the two? So does it work because the way it says that it's supposed to work or is, does it work for some novel mechanism that we've stumbled across? That, so that's a great question. Uh, and this book, really, the whole book is about that. Um, and what are the pieces where we have some support? What are the pieces that we really don't necessarily have as much support? Um, what I would first start with, though, is uh, prolonged exposure is built on a theory called emotional processing theory, which is really a psychological kind of uh, theory. And it doesn't necessarily map exactly right onto onto our brains and our neuroscience. Um, so when when I'm talking about emotional processing theory, I'm really thinking about that theory as a decision making tool for the providers in the sessions. Uh, because we know if people are sticking with making decisions based on that theory, their patients are probably going to move through treatment efficiently and effectively. Um, now, where the neuroscience comes in, um, we're really trying to uh, figure out how how that maps to our brains. So we're really trying to figure out uh, when we talk about habituation, um, is it habituation, uh, which is actually something where you'd have to repeat something many, 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 many times until the response disappears, or is extinction actually more uh, what's going on in the sessions. And that's a place where the neuroscience research has really suggested that it's extinction, much more that's involved in, in all exposure therapies at this point than, um, than really habituation, even though we still kind of use the habituation term in our therapy session sometimes. Um, so that's a good example of where the neuroscience actually helped us to learn that the brain mechanisms are mapping on um, a slightly different learning uh, element than than what we thought, um, and there our brains are complex. <laughs> also, our brains involve multiple systems, 
at the same time and multiple levels of things going on at the same time. Um, so that's another place where there's a lot of complexity. So when we say in uh, emotional processing theory or in sessions to patients that you're, uh, how you think about yourself and the world is changing, we do know that 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 changes in those thoughts where someone's feeling more competent to handle negative affect are going to result in benefit. They're going to have reductions in symptoms and feel better over time. We don't know at this point how that's reflected in the brain. <laughs> Does that result in or um, or cause changes in cortisol or are changes in cortisol making it possible for people to have changes in those thoughts? Those levels of um, inquiry are still ongoing. We're doing lots of research that's looking in, in different ways. Um, so that was a really long answer to say. <laughs> I think neuroscience uh, has a lot of complex systems that we're looking into and we're still learning. Um, and the real advantage is finding ways to tweak what we're doing with our patients to make it even more effective for more people, uh, more efficient for the people who it's already working for. So it works even faster and potentially even get it briefer so that we can get it out to more people in, in less time. And I'll stop and let Carmen add <laughs> to my long tirade. Oh, that was, that was great. Um, the, the other thing that sort of came to mind with that question is, you know, studies have looked at sort of reduction in distress within a single session and then also across sessions because emotional processing theory that um, Dr. Roche mentioned is it, it, it suggested that those would those things would be indicators that emotional processing would happen and, and be, be linked with recovery. And so studies have looked at that sometimes with just self-report of distress, but sometimes also with um, psychophysiological indicators. And I would say that would be maybe kind of an area where there's a bit of a surprise where the theory suggested that you have to have um, uh, you have to experience distress during the session um, in order to, to, ha to have a good outcome. <clears throat> and that seems not to, in fact, be the case. Um, it seems like that does not reliably um, relate to overall treatment outcome. And that is, is, is interesting. It, it, and, and it actually does fit with some, um, similar, um, theories like, um, inhibitory learning theories that your experience while you're doing the exposure, um, it, it's not really the same thing as the learning that happens at the, at a broader, um, broader picture. Um, and the implication of that is that, you know, PE, as I said, was traditionally developed as a, as a therapy that's delivered in 90 minute sessions, which doesn't map on very well to how most mental health care is delivered uh, across the systems. And so the implication of you don't have to kind of continue with the exposure until your distress gets down to a certain point that may or that may not be as important as we thought. The implication then is that perhaps the, the, the exposure session does not need to be quite as long. And in fact, there have been um, studies recently that have tested that um, by comparing sort of longer versus shorter sessions. And they do seem to be comparable in terms of outcomes. Yeah, so th that's an excellent point. So it, it's really the fact that you are approaching and feeling emotions, not necessarily that it has to get easier with time. Um, 
because people symptoms are being reduced. Um, at least for some people, they're reduced, even if that doesn't go down over time. Yeah, this is fascinating and really maps to my experience as a clinician. There's maybe more than a subset of clients where really the metric of success seems to become their willingness to experience the symptoms rather than a reduction, uh, especially depending on the particular type of trauma that they've experienced. So that makes all the intuitive sense in the in the world to me. Just from a very practical perspective, and I'm going to get into the the weeds a little bit here from a from a suds perspective, the subjective units of distress. Is there any sense of some minimum that we need to get to? I, I'm hearing we don't need to be, you know, wildly activated. Uh, are we talking sort of like 30, 40, 50? I hate to put like such a specific number on it, but I, I think I just want the clinicians in the audience to have some sort of a sense of maybe what's the zone they should be looking for. What 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 would map onto what you've learned in the course of, of writing the book, if you can even answer that question reasonably? Yeah, so um, the thing about a sub scale is it is uh, subjective. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so one person's 30 may be very different than another person's 30. So that's the first thing I'll say. Um, mm -hmm. And as Carmen said, we don't, uh, there are people who remit from PTSD who continue to have high levels of suds when they go into some situations or when they approach their memory. Um, but if they're functioning better, if they're not having those nightmares and intrusive symptoms, if they're doing things they want in life, uh, that's a wonderful, that is a reasonable ending point. That's a, a good goal. They don't have PTSD anymore. Um, so I don't want to pin us into a specific SUDS rating. When I'm training therapists, we do still train them that we're looking for uh, patients generally in their in vivo items to have their peak um, when they're done with an item, their peak SUDS rating is we would want it below 50. We would want it slightly lower than that potentially for many of the items on their hierarchy. Um, and naturally, most patients, I would say, uh, by far the majority of patients, their suds go down a lot um, to where it's 10s, 20s, 30s, you know, pretty low for all of the um, items that they're working on a lot. With the trauma memory, um, again, we're looking ideally to get them below a 50 peak, um, ideally, if they are really listening to their tapes and really doing their exposures, they're probably going to be even lower than that. Um, it's never going to be a fun memory. And the real goal is whether they're willing to do the things that they want to do in their life. Um, and, and that's really what I'm, I'm going for. Do they feel like this memory is still haunting them? If they do, then we need to keep doing the exposures. If they feel like they're in charge and they can make decisions out of what they want to do, um, then, then I feel like we're in a good place to end. Excellent. Thank you. And I just want to uh, resonate with Dr. McLean's point around the 90 minute session. That was exactly one of my questions as a as a clinician in private practice, a 90 minute session, whether it's a private pair or the client paying directly, that's an unwieldy arrangement in many situations. So to know that the, there's some flexibility around that window is uh, is really, really good to hear. One of the other things I was wondering about is did anything that you came across in the course of writing this book speak to the relative impact of in vivo versus imaginal exposure? Like which one might have the biggest, biggest bang for the buck or do they have similar impacts or do they, do they work together? I'm, I'm curious to any sort of comments or thoughts you have around those two real pillars of PE. I like this question. Um, <clears throat> I'm curious to know what you think, Sheila, but I can share my thoughts first. I think they work. I, I, I think they work sort of in tandem. 
Um, and I think I sort of work in tandem whether or not the treatment protocol explicitly includes in vivo exposure or not. Most PTSD treatments focus on imaginal exposure. Some like prolonged exposure also have in vivo, um, which is great because it really is directly helping the, the, the client get back to doing the things that they value and they want to be able to do in their life and like have a fuller life. So I, I in vivo exposure is really important. Um, I would say that from protocols where it's not an explicit part of the treatment package, often what happens is the client ends up doing effectively doing in vivo exposure on their own, which makes so much sense because if you're doing imaginal exposure and you're, you're getting used to the trauma memory, you're learning, I can think about this and tolerate it and I'm okay. And now it's actually getting less upsetting for me to think about it you're probably going to be more comfortable going into that situation that you know is going to bring up memories for you or is going to remind you of what happened. So you can see how they really work, I think, in tandem. Um, in terms of, of research, like there isn't a, I don't think there's a lot. Most, as I said, most treatment studies, most treatments use imaginal exposure. I know of like a couple studies where they've like just done in vivo exposure and it, and it was effective. And then one study, um, by Richard Bryant that did like in vivo and imaginal and in vivo and imaginal and I think found comparable outcomes um, for whatever it's worth. But I think I think the reality is that the things that you're learning, whether in in either form of exposure is you're learning, I can approach, I can tolerate, it gets easier. And that that would kind of generalize to experiences you have in terms of situations and in terms of sort of internal stimuli as well. I'm just going to build on that question just a little bit. Does the neuroscience suggest any value in tailoring the clinical approach, for example, using PE versus maybe cognitive processing therapy, depending on the client's presentation? Or ultimately, are we dealing with some sort of final common pathway for trauma where it doesn't really matter how we get in there, we're ultimately going to be interfacing with the same set of circuits, systems, and whatnot? Um, so this is an area where um, there may be a little bit of controversy, I, I think, um, we were just talking about this the other week. Yeah. Um, so I believe that PE and CPT really work through the same uh, brain pathways. They just get there a little bit differently or they start a little bit differently. Um, other people would not agree with me on that. Um, in particular, I think CPT, CPT providers may have a different perspective. Actually, probably many PE uh, uh, researchers have a different perspective. Um, so far, there's not a lot of research, neuroscience research specifically, trying to compare the two treatments and look at what's going on in the brain with PE and CPT. So that's part of why there's controversy is we, we haven't done that. Those, those studies would be super expensive um, to do. And, and we really haven't done that yet. So really most of the neuroscience research has used one or the other and then looked at what's happening. Um, and generally uh, lots of people like to say that PE is a bottom up treatment and CPT is a top down, but um, there's a lot of neuroscience research with PE that does not support that. <laughs> PE is doing a lot of top down. We're doing a lot of um, medial pre- ventromedial prefrontal cortex down-regulating the um, stress response system. 
Um, and that's the same thing that we see in most of the studies looking at CPT. Um, or if we look at cortisol, um, there's, you know, a lot of similarity in the studies that have looked at cortisol and CPT sessions and cortisol and PE sessions. Uh, Carmen, what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, well, I would, I just want to echo what you just said, because I think there is sort of like this misconception that exposure therapy, like it's, it's about habituation and it's just about desensitizing people. And it is, it is such a, if you've, if you've done, if you've delivered PE, you know, that's not the case because you see how active a therapy it is and how much is really actively relearning something and processing and thinking about shifting your, your perspective on things. So, um, I wanted to just echo that. And then, um, yeah, I, so two, two other thoughts. So one is that studies that have tried to look at mechanisms of, of psychotherapies for PTSD, and really what we're primarily doing is we're looking at mediators, right, to kind of give us clues about possible mechanisms. mechanisms. Um, <clears throat> but one of the sort of constructs that was um, thought was, was suggested as a mechanism of, of recovery in emotional processing therapy um, theory, I'm sorry, was um, negative post-traumatic cognitions. And so this is something that often studies have measured and studies have tested as, let's see if this measure, um, if this mediates change in PTSD symptoms over time. And so several, several studies have looked at that as and found that that does mediate PTSD symptom change in prolonged exposure. Um, but that has also been looked at in other therapies as well, including CPT, and it also mediates change for that therapy. So this is, I think, supporting what Sheila was saying about probably there's some a lot of overlap in the mechanisms that are underlying recovery across these therapies, even though they maybe look different at the level of sort of procedure or they come from sort of different camps in terms of the theory. Um, possibly there's a lot of, of overlap. And I think that that is also supported, that hypothesis is also supported um, by what we see in studies that have tried to look at different pieces, like combining or separating different pieces of um, treatment packages. So studies that have looked at exposure with and without cognitive restructuring, for example, um, or variations of that study design typically don't find that any, any one combination of these things leads to superior outcomes than the other. And my, my take on that is it's probably because they're all doing the same thing. So we're not going to see an additive impact by putting them together if the mechanisms underlying them are largely overlap. I'm just going to take us a little bit further down this road and perhaps you've answered this in course, but I just want to flesh this out a little bit more and I'll, I'll sprinkle in a little bit of a clinical example that has come up for me frequently. You know, moral injury, either self or others, is often a big component of the clinical presentation of a client with PTSD and one which I found sometimes feels a little bit adjacent to the more fear, horror, or terror-based emphasis of, of PE in, in some, but certainly not all respects. I've certainly had many military clients who have been, say, in Canada, Afghanistan is a big theater that is relevant for us. We were in Afghanistan in the early 2000s. They've come home. A lot of the fear 
terror symptoms have abated, but they're left with a deep sense of betrayal or a moral injury. Again, as I said previously, any comment from either of you around the neuroscience of PE relative to maybe addressing a moral injury or just any comments you or observations you have in general? I find this to be a really fascinating area of trauma. Yeah. So one thing that I would start off with about moral injury is it describes a characteristic of a trauma that um, someone's experienced. And the result of that characteristic can be PTSD. Um, It could also be depression or GAD or something else with a more ruminative quality. Um, If it's depression or GAD, where they're just wishing that things were different, wishing that they didn't need to do this, um, like ruminating over ways that they could fix it, then a more worry-based treatment, like a GAD treatment or a depression treatment might be warranted. If someone has PTSD following a trauma that includes moral injury, PE and CPT actually are both super effective uh, for the treatment of that um, because you're working with that stuck memory. And that's really where it starts. So if it's moral injury that's related to depression, um, then you're, it's probably not going to be the right, uh, PE is probably not going to be the right treatment for that. But if it's moral injury and they have a stuck memory that um, it's coming back to them in nightmares and intrusive symptoms, that uh, is super effective. Uh, PE is super effective to work with a, that type of PTSD. Dr. McLean, had you wanted to add anything to that thought? Um, the, the only thing that comes to mind is that if, you know, I, I think PE is, it's a, such a flexible treatment that there would definitely be ways I could think offhand of like, maybe there'd be some particular in vivos that you might want to consider um, with a client who had an experience and, and they might want to like do something that would promote sort of connections and help them, um, you know, feel, feel valued and feel like they have valued relationships with other people. Um, or to sort of some sort of maybe reparative action or something like that. I think there are maybe some clinical considerations um, that would come into play, but I think they could be, I think they could be addressed within the the broad and flexible um, approach of of PE. Yeah. And Carmen, that's an outstanding point because um, that's really a strength of PE is that you're working with whatever problematic, unhelpful thoughts this patient has coming in. Um, And the imaginal exposure is a tool. It's a window to open those, you know, open that trauma up so that they can relook at it and decide what thoughts they want to keep, what thoughts they want to throw away, what thoughts they want to change. And that's our job as a therapist is to be with them while they're re-exploring that trauma memory and coming to new conclusions and making changes. So um, if they had previously concluded that um, they were somehow responsible for this, we would have the opportunity to um, to talk through that, to see whether they feel that way in the end. Uh, their in vivo hierarchy, as Carmen said, we might have um, items on there for making amends or for mm-hmm. approaching uh, certain types of populations. There's lots of lots of good flex where we can work uh, work in whatever the issue is that that patient is suffering with. Wonderful. Those are really, really helpful answers and very much maps to my experience deploying PE again in, re- in a very flexible 
uh, format. So it's nice to know that that is uh, something that is done. I have found in doing exposure-based work with clients, we really have to work to create a mindset of intentional learning that is not white-knuckling through the experience, but rather actively working to acquire new data that will disrupt old learning, old patterns. From a brain lens, is do we know if PE is experienced differently within the brain depending on the client's stance to the treatment? That is, if they're kind of steep, maybe more in that collaborative empiricism versus kind of more of a powering through kind of mindset? Do we know if it's, again, like coursing through the brain? That's very much a metaphor. I didn't know that's like wildly inaccurate and probably making people grimace, but does PE flow through the brain differently as a function of your stance towards it as an individual? So I would, so my first uh, statement would be, we don't know um, because we haven't done that research yet. Um, What would be really cool would be able, would be if we could do like a spec study of the brain while people are doing these imaginal exposures and and see what kinds of chemicals are being released more or less in what parts of the brain. That has not been done yet. Um, That would be, again, super expensive to do, but uh, may really help us. I do think a lot of the mechanistic studies and a lot of the research that's summarized in our book is pointing to different ways that we think the brain is reacting differently. Um, and one of the things that I, that comes to my mind is plasticity and, uh, the brain derived neurotropic factor, um, in the brain. Um, that's one particular chemical. There's lots of other stuff and lots of other possibilities that, that might be involved, but basically when that's on board, the brain is ready to learn. Um, and it's primed to bring new information in, to make new connections, to um, grow new um, new connections in the brain. Um, and so I suspect what you're describing may be uh, reflected in that, that if someone is very closed and very push, uh, very much pushing and avoiding and putting their focus and energy on that, we would probably um, have less of that BDNF on board in their brain, but this is all just theory right now. <laughs> this is just me, me talking based on little pieces of information. Uh, but that I do think that, that we will at some point, uh, learn those processes involved. It does seem related though. Like there's certainly, you know, neuroscience, um, work on act that looking at activation. And I feel like this is sort of related to that. Like if you're white knuckling it through, you're effectively kind of, you're either doing something to kind of distract yourself or, or, or whatever, you're kind of keeping it at arm's length. And that would, that's, that's, you know, that's going to impact the degree to which you're, you're, you're activated. And that's been looked at. And there's also some interesting augmentative interventions that are really going at this specific piece. Actually, a bunch of things that people are looking at right now. We don't know if, if they work, but there's like TDCS, there, um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, transcranial direct current stimulation. There's uh, several psychedelic drugs that we think are probably working through those pathways. Um, there's exercise even like priming with exercise, we think releases that BDNF and, and it, those are all kind of aimed at that same, um, what we think may be a mechanistic process of enhancing neuroplasticity through release of BDNF. 
Yes, my therapeutic fantasy was always to have maybe like a squat rack in my office or something where I could get people to do some squats or deadlifts and then go in and do that kind of work. And I'm and being that in all seriousness, right, just the openness that will come with physiological activation. I think you make an excellent point around the mechanism of things like MDMA, you know, promoting that openness to experience, whereas previously the person would have been so closed off. I asked this question because I've just noticed over, you know, a decade of doing this kind of work, clients clients who seem to white knuckle they they never really seem to habituate it's always like oh made it through they experience relief at the end as opposed to a, a growing sense of confidence so i i've, I've right. just noted this over and over and over again yeah yeah the, i mean basically that if you're white knuckling that's a safety behavior they're engaging in some kind of safety behavior so they're learning i'm only safe when i'm doing blah when I'm grinding my nails into my fist or or whatever they're doing that that they're white knuckling um they're seeing that I mean that becomes the the safe thing instead of I can approach this memory and it's not fun it's hard but I'm okay many of us are providing care through virtual platforms even after COVID restrictions have been lifted in, in many areas like the delivery of therapeutic services has just changed probably forever at this point Does the available evidence have any guidance around this practice from a brain lens? Is there anything that clinicians should be attuned to with respect to the way that the brain processes information interfacing with PE over video conference? Yeah, I don't I don't know about through the the brain lens piece specifically, but we do know that um, PE is as effective when delivered in person as it is when delivered through um, video teleconferencing, you know, platform. Um, I think there certainly are some some clinical implementation considerations. Like one would be that it can be more difficult to kind of maybe gauge the level of of engagement that the client has um, because you have a little less access to like some nonverbals and things like that. That's the main thing that comes to mind for me. I'm not aware of any specific neuroscience research that's looked at um, PE via telehealth compared to um, to face-to-face. So I don't know that there's research data to suggest it. And since the effectiveness and efficacy seem to be similar, um, I would suspect there's probably, um, it, it's probably working the same way. And except for individual variability, um, there's probably not a lot of difference. It's, it's interesting though, the thing that I just thought that came to mind because we're on a zoom call right now and I can see my little square of myself is I wonder if there's something really interesting happening there with people seeing themselves while they're doing the exposure. And also in, in some of my work with doing like using more like digital interventions, I found that some um, clients kind of like having to not worry as um, as much about the therapist's reaction to their retelling, um, at least initially. Um, and I wonder if there's something around that that is maybe a little bit different for people when it's telehealth and in person. Could be. And there's, def- I mean, presence. Presence um, is part of it. There was some research. I don't know if, there, if this is still going on. But um, there was some suggestion that oxytocin might facilitate um, uh, extinction retention. 
I don't think it's ever been used in PE, but oxytocin is, is released much more significantly in the presence of people uh, than it is over Zoom. I did see a, I did see a study mm-hmm. recently that looked at that. I was curious myself of uh, feeling oxytocin deprived after all the Zoom calls instead of being with people. Yeah. yeah. But it's hard to find. I mean, PE is such a robust therapy. Like it's hard for something, you know, something, something like subtle in how it's delivered is not likely to have a a really major effect, you know, overall because it's so effective. No, exactly. It's got a very strong signal uh, is, is my read of it. Based on your reading of the literature, are there some types of medication that would be better aligned with PE? Of course, most clinicians are going to already have this impression that, you know, benzodiazepines in particular are generally viewed pejoratively by psychotherapists. Any thoughts on this based on, on what you've learned around this? Um, so the short version of this would be any medication that's going to interfere with learning um, is probably not going to be good. And any medication that we think is facilitating learning processes in some way is probably going to be good. So, I mean, that's really benzos similar to alcohol or similar to being like super high (laughs) before you start a session. Those are all things that are going to make it pretty hard to learn or to retain information. Um, So those would be bad. Um, But things that help you to, um, to retain more learning um, within each repetition of something. So that's why there was some research on, um, uh, decycloserin a few years ago. It's it's a little bit mixed, but there's some suggestion that may be helpful. Um, and uh, THC actually, there's evidence that it facilitates extinction retention, um, and so that may be something. Most of these, it would be more of like an augmentation type of intervention. And then almost all of the patients we see are by the time they get to a PTSD provider are already on an SSRI. <laughs> so it's good to note. Uh, there's some research to suggest if you start, and actually a study that I led, if you start them at the same time, um, they're probably not going to augment each other and they may, uh, the SSRI may actually interfere with PE because they're attributing gains potentially to the med instead of to themselves um, would be what I would say. Um, so that's, it's probably, a, if you're on an SSRI, it's okay to start PE, you're probably going to get good benefit out of it. Um, but if you're not on either and you're trying to decide which one to start with, it's probably a good course to start with PE or CPT first. Of course, uh, anyone familiar with trauma work knows that psychedelic and or MDMA assisted psychotherapy has come on the scene quite a bit. There's quite a bit of interest in it, perhaps even hype. Any window into why you feel this may appear perhaps to, to be effective with, within this context or not if, if you have a contrary thought to this? So I would start off by saying we need to do good research. Um, at this point, I think there's a lot of excitement um, for these interventions um, and MDMA, um, some evidence with THC, some evidence with psilocybin all kind of circling around um, the potential for increasing neuroplasticity um, so that they might help each exposure session be more effective, move someone a little farther along, keep their extinction retention a little bit longer. Um, 
so I, I think that there's good suggestion, um, but I want good research that's done on it. The other thing is most of those are all, are um, done in combination with a therapy of some type. Um, so I also worry about implementation um, and making sure that we're implementing in a way that we're setting our field up for success. Um, so if we, for instance, uh, creating a new therapy as opposed to building on the two therapies that have already been disseminated most widely, it seems like we, it would be efficient for our mental health systems to try and see, can do we get the same benefit from augmenting PE or CPT with this medication as opposed to building a whole new treatment that we then have to disseminate and disseminate the um I, I was going to say say schedule uh, schedule two is it in the US anyway uh, the they're specially regulated meds but that's probably totally different in Canada for the people listening. <laughs> I can't keep track it seems to be changing quite a bit I mean I think perhaps even even worse is this notion that people can maybe go to a high-end spa type environment uh, you know take these compounds and walk out you know, on Sunday with their trauma healed, yeah. <laughs> right? I think there's that perception as well. And uh, anyone who's done any kind of trauma work, either been the recipient thereof or provided knows there is like a hell of a lot of work involved, regardless of what kind of augmentative strategies you have going on. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's, it's not really the, it's not just taking the, the drug, <laughs> Um it's been my understanding is that it's been tested in studies where, you know, the, the client is coming in for like a six hour session or something like that. Right. And they're where they're where they're you know, ingesting the medication. And then it's it's more of like a supportive therapy type situation. So I I'm not sure I know a study is about to start where I think they're testing it as an augmentation, maybe for CPT. But I don't know if there's any published work um, on psychedelics as an augmentation of like an existing EBP. Do you know of any, Sheila? There, um, there's ongoing stuff. Rachel, there's you ongoing stuff. study with PE. Actually, okay. we did a study at Emory that's about to start augmenting uh, MDMA okay. on, on PE. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see what, what, that, uh, what that work finds. Um, but the other sort of considerations for people to think about with this research, with that research is um, you can't have a placebo for an active, um, you know, like for a psychedelic medication. You know if you're high on MDMA or not. So that's important because it means you can't like it, it impacts the, the, the confidence you can have. That the effects are really due to to the to the to the treatment, um, and not some expectations and 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 so forth or other you know placebo effects. Um, the other is, I think people that are open to doing that kind of treatment, um, it's not going to be every person with PTSD that is going to be really open to that, hopeful that it works for them, and willing to try it. Um, and that so there's sort of a selection effect. Um, anytime there's a treatment that is that is sort of outside the norm of sort of what's standard, um, you have to think about the selection effect too, which doesn't mean that it's it's um, you know if it proves to be very useful, it's it's still valid because 
not no treatment works for every person with PTSD. So we, we do want to identify alternative strategies that are effective for people, even if it is just a subset. You touch upon this quite a bit in the book. What are some of the ways that you'd like to see PE augmented based on, you know, what you discovered as you wrote this or what do you think is holds the most promise in terms of augmenting the work that's already being done apropos the point that we made already today? I think a really cool thing you'll, uh, you go ahead after me, Sheila, but um, I think like what Sheila was saying with some studies have looked at like exercise, I think in general. So, I mean, that particular example may or may not, proved to be very promising or not. But in general, things that a mental health provider could do are going to be better in terms of dissemination and implementation than strategies that require, you know, some other type of, of intervention. You know, if you have to have your brain stimulated or even taking medication, I think um, it, it, it would be easier from a dissemination implementation perspective if it was something that a mental health provider could do, because then it would be it'd just be much easier for them to adopt that into their practice. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I do all kinds of research because I want to figure out everything <laughs> um, and I want to, you know, explore and do good research on all the possible ways that we might be able to augment. But the things I'm most excited about are um, augmentative interventions that we can um, really deploy quickly um, and easily with low resource use and without another provider. Um, Because I've been a part of the VA PE rollout since since it started. Um, And that is an example of uh, one of the most resourced (laughs) dissemination implementation efforts, um, at least in the US. Um, And they've had a lot of success, but it's hard. And it's hard to get people to continue to use it after they um, have been trained. And it's hard to to maintain quality within groups um, and all of that stuff. So if we start adding other things that also need to be dealt delivered with fidelity or all other providers who also need to do their job with that level of training. Um, I just see that it um, makes it even harder for Joe on the street who has PTSD to get the best care that, that he can get. So, uh, so I would agree. I, I love exercise as a possible <laughs> augmentation strategy um, I love uh, potentially uh, things that are easily pills that are easily given in the office, like shortly before. So that's why I, I've been siding more towards um, like THC and cannabinoids over MDMA that takes like an eight hour session or, or psilocybin that takes like an eight hour session. I'm still excited about those, still doing research on those and we need to, um, but uh, I think the best promises with those things that we can really get out and get into use in the field. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's really exciting. So from the lens of the clinician, I have found that PE is one of the most immersive therapies that I have delivered. And it's the one I've needed to exercise the most caution around, I would say almost from an occupational hazard perspective. And of course, I'm alluding to things like vicarious trauma or picking up some of the the stuff that you hear along the way. I've done lots of work with first responders, military uh, police, paramedics, things like that. And you, of course, you, in, in the course of doing the imaginal exposure, you hear all kinds of, of things. 
Do you think it would be fruitful to examine clinicians from a similar lens with respect to what's going on inside of their brain in terms of optimizing the delivery and sustainability of delivering PE? Uh, I personally have noticed really highly variable capacities for delivering different amounts of volumes of PE among clinicians that aren't really tied to clinician preference. It's more just like, hey, I love doing the work, but I can see four clients using this modality a week and some can do that's their full time gig is is doing PE within an operational stress injury clinic or something like that. Any suggestion from the lens of your book around best practices with respect to maybe avoiding burnout, vicarious trauma, et cetera, et cetera. So sorry, a lot of questions in there, but I would just love to get your take on this, given the the audience who will be listening to this. I definitely don't think there's been a lot of research on that, like neuropsych research on like a therapist's experience delivering um, treatment. I think it's a, I think it's a good point. I know when I, you know, was trained in PE, um, this, the, the advice was, you know, to, to focus on, on the client and on their recovery and on the things you can do and, and to get consultation as much as you can. And to remember that extinction will work for you too, as a, as a therapist that you do, you do sort of learn to better tolerate, um, the the distress that you do as a fellow human being anyone would experience when you're when you're hearing the, the horrors that that have happened to people and the, the degree to which they suffer um, from those experiences um, and and I would say that maps to my experience that like I can remember really well the first few patients that I um, did PE with and then after that like less so as I got more and more into it I sort of got used to it more and more so I my own experience maps onto that of like you kind of get used to it um as well Sheila what are your thoughts yeah so um for me um I found when I was doing full-time PTSD work in the VA um I actually had the opposite reaction and and so I would start off by saying everybody's a little bit different. So the larger proportion, whenever I had more PE patients, I felt like my mental health was better because I I had a diagnosis. I I had a good treatment. I could see them getting better. Um, and that was very reinforcing to me. What was harder for me was when the portion of my patient schedule that didn't want to engage in an EBP, they did, they just wanted uh, supportive interventions or the crisis management. That's the stuff that really, um, for me, is harder to work with than, than the PE. Um, PE tends to be my my solace, <laughs> my my stress reliever. But I would say that's within a context of a lot of support of having a team that we talk about our cases. If I have a, a particular trauma that um, is hard or a type of trauma that I know would be hard for me, I know this came up when I was pregnant. That um, I paused <laughs> on CSA cases because it I just, it was just too hard when I was pregnant. Um, since then I've, I've started back seeing those patients again, but, uh, but it's good to listen to yourself and to have an, a supportive team, uh, for doing PE if at all possible. And if you don't have that within your own research practice, or if you're a private practitioner, there are consultation groups and things nationally for PE that you can get connected to. 
I was just thinking how there is research that's looked at the use of evidence-based psychotherapies and that is inversely related to burnout in general. So I don't think that's PE specific, but it makes sense that if you have a tool that you know and you're competent at and you can reliably use it to see recovery in your patients, that that's going to make you feel better in your workplace. But I, I totally agree with Sheila that everybody is different and maybe you have to find the right sort of proportion of, of, of uh, your caseload or whatever that works for you. Yeah, it also might depend on what that other piece of your caseload is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you're preaching to the choir. I mean, I, I, I could just imagine being a personal trainer and someone comes in with a stated goal of wanting to be able to, I don't know, run a triathlon or bench press 200 pounds or something. And then you go to show them the exercises. Well, can we, I just want to talk about why the bar is so heavy first, or I want to, you know, <laughs> or whatever, right? It's if you can't be effective and have a sense of efficacy and agency in the therapy, it's just like absolutely soul crushing. I, I so resonate with both of your perspectives. Drs. Rausch and McLean, I really want to thank you for being here today. I so appreciate uh, your perspective. I've learned so much. Thank and thank you for writing such a wonderful book. If people want to learn more, where can they find you? Um, well, I'm at Emory. Uh, I'm at Emory, and um, you can reach me on my email. In addition, our book is available um, on Amazon and also from Oxford University Press. Um, and Carmen? I am at the National Center for PTSD at the Dissemination and Training Division in Palo Alto and at Stanford University. <clears throat> so you can find me there. You can follow me at Twitter um, at Carmen McLean PhD. I share some of my research and so on there as well, as, as does Sheila. I don't know your handle, though. Um, Sheila underscore Roush. Um, I think I, I'm, I'm old. So Twitter, I'm not good with my Twitter handle. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you. Well, thanks to you both for your time. I really appreciate it. And I hope we get to maybe chat in the future. Yep. Thank you. thank you for inviting us. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you to you both. Have Bye. a great day. Thank you. Bye. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. 